Good morning. There are times when it's great to see gaps in the uh, auditorium and seats that are empty, and this is one of those days. We have a large number of our uh, young adults and college students who are down at Big Reedy this morning. They've been down there this weekend uh, as they have been listening to lessons that challenge them and uh, building their faith at this crucial time of life. They've been listening to Hiram uh, as he has spoken the word of God to them as is taking place this morning. I'm grateful for elders who have the wisdom and foresight and understanding to try to address the needs that we all have in the various times of life. And I think that this retreat this weekend is just one example of that. Less than a month from now, our ladies will have the same kind of an opportunity with the ladies' retreat. Uh, Kim Higginbotham, who used to be the preacher's wife at South Green Street in Glasgow, they now live in Knoxville, Tennessee, where the uh, Southern uh, the Seebs, it used to be East Tennessee School of Preaching and Missions. He is the preacher there, Steve is. And uh, I know many of you know uh, Kim. She'll do a wonderful job. And just thank our elders for providing for the the needs uh, that we have to be fed in very general ways and very specific ways. One of the best books that I have read on the subject of leadership in the last several years is John Dixon's book, Humilitas. And in that book, he indicates that even though humility is a pretty widespread and universal virtue today, that it has not always been so. That in fact, before Jesus came in the flesh... That was unheard of. That arrogance and self-congratulation was everywhere seen, was the norm of the day. Honor was everywhere mentioned, and humility was nowhere mentioned. This was an, a concept that was championed by the great minds of the day like Aristotle. But by contrast, Dixon says, look at today, where humility is admired by everybody. But not only is arrogance and self-congratulation seen as a vice, but it is seen as a repulsive behavior that is reserved for the socially unaware and uncouth. What I find remarkable about Dixon's book is that he's not making an apology, a defense for the spiritual good that Jesus did through humility, but the way he transformed our culture and transformed our world by the ethic of humility that he brought into the world. When we think about humility, I think it is a quality that we admire and respect in other people, but not necessarily something that we want to incorporate ourselves. Or maybe it is a quality that we would like to get credit for without having to put in the sweat equity in order to attain. This morning, we're not simply talking about humility. If you notice the title in the sermon notes in the bulletin or seen it uh, as it has been presented, the idea is of being righteous humbly. If we talk about what righteousness is, we need to make sure that we have a little footnote at the beginning of this study. The word righteousness or righteous is used in two ways in the New Testament. In the book of Romans, for example, there's what we might call imputed righteousness. That is, righteousness that was given on our behalf. And this righteousness is not something that we can produce on our own. It is the idea of being made right by Jesus Christ. And so that is an important aspect of righteousness. But that is not the way we mean righteousness today. 
The New Testament also speaks of righteousness as simply the doing of what is right. As we follow Jesus, who did right absolutely, then we're going to make the right decisions. We're going to make right actions. Our character is going to be right. But I believe as I went searching for a definition of righteousness, it's hard to improve on what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 10. In that particular context, the Apostle Paul is defending the work that he had done as a missionary and their lives as Christians. And as he speaks about the work that they do, he says, As we found ourselves among you, we behaved ourselves devoutly, uprightly, and blamelessly. You ever thought about those qualities together? That to be righteous is to be devout. Because that word devout means to make a, it's moral superiority. It means to live in a God-pleasing way. But he also says, I lived uprightly. All that means is in a way that's right, a way that's correct. It means the kind of character, action, and thoughts that we ought to have. And then he said, we behaved ourselves blamelessly among you. That means without reproach. It means not living in such a way that anybody could legitimately complain. In the Greco-Roman world, this was a word used to describe extraordinary civic consciousness. That being the case... Living devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly in a biblical way. Might it be difficult for us? Let's assume for this lesson, none of us can do this perfectly, but if we are walking in the light as He is in the light and we have fellowship with one another and we have that fellowship with God and with Christ, that means that we're living devoutly, uprightly and blamelessly on the whole. But if you, and I'm not endorsing all the lyrics of the old Mac Davis song, but if you survived the 1970s, you might remember his song, Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. And I know that he was being facetious to some extent. But it can be hard to be humble. If you're living in a way that is morally superior, if you're living in a way that's approved of God, if you're living in a way that is without reproach and without complaint, it can be hard to master that virtue of being righteous humbly, but it is a virtue that we must maintain. Now if we look at Jesus and see him as the great example, as the one who introduced the characteristic of humility, and we understand that we're to follow him, then if we're going to be right in the eyes of God living right, then we've got to do it like he did. We've got to live out our righteousness humbly. So the question is this morning, how do we do that? I'd like for us to look at humility more closely and by doing so, see how it will cause us to temper the right way of living that God wants us to live in this world that's not trying to live right. So number one, I want you to notice with me that humility is a quality that is found with other qualities. And to understand this, there are a couple of passages that are focused on the church at Ephesus. The Apostle Paul is speaking to the Ephesians and he is talking about right living, but he is showing how to live right with these other qualities that are found there. The first one that I've called to your attention is in Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 19, we see the Apostle Paul on the second missionary journey and there is an uproar, there's a riot in Ephesus and he's got to leave very quickly. And maybe this is why he calls for the elders of the church to come to him in Miletus. The Ephesian elders come to him and as he speaks to them, 
He begins to outline, to give a defense of his character and of his motives and of his action. How righteous could this spirit-led apostle claim to be? Well, here's what he says in Acts chapter 20 and verse 20. He says that I shrank not from declaring unto you anything that was profitable unto you. Paul could talk about his work, his life, and he could say that I'm devoted to the gospel of God's grace. Acts chapter 20 and verse 24. I'm preaching the kingdom of God. Acts chapter 20 and verse 25. That sounds like devout and upright and blameless. In fact, in Acts chapter 20 and verse 26, he says that I can declare unto you that I am free from the blood of all men. I'm innocent of the blood. For I have not shrank back from declaring the whole purpose of God. Here's a man living righteously who is exemplary in that regard. So how is it that he did that? Well, we want to go back to Acts chapter 20, literally where the discussion begins. In verse 18 he says, And you yourselves know how from the day that I came to Asia that I was with you the whole time. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and trials that came upon me by the plots of the Jews. What tempered Paul's righteousness? What made it so he did not seem self-righteous and arrogant in the exercise of his Christianity? It was those other qualities that went alongside of that. In Acts chapter 20, verse 18 and 19, you see that his righteousness was accompanied by all humility. And the humility demonstrated itself by his tears and his trials. May I suggest to you that emptying ourselves of ourselves is never going to be found by itself. It's going to be accompanied by other things. And what's also remarkable is that if you study slavery in the Greco-Roman world, there were three traits that made one visible as a slave. One was that they were humbled. You weren't your own man. You were somebody else's possession. And so it kept you from having too much honor and self-congratulation. But, as it was the case in many slaves' lives, they were at the whim of their master's, whatever their feelings were. And so oftentimes they were beaten. They may have even had their lives taken from them or had seen atrocities. And so there were tears. But then there were also trials. To live as a subjugated person in that day was such that you were constantly under the stress of sacrificing just to live in the way that you wanted to live. And so the Apostle Paul says, my righteousness came along with a humility that demonstrated itself by my tears and by the trials that I suffered for serving Jesus Christ, my Master. But then you think about what he says in Ephesians chapter 4. The Apostle Paul is going to speak to the whole church later in Ephesians chapter 4 in verse 1. In light of all the blessings that the Lord has given to us, he says that I urge you therefore as the prisoner of the Lord that you walk worthy of the calling with which you were called with all humility of mind, with gentleness and patience for, or tolerating one another in love, giving diligence to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, if the Apostle Paul says there's a worthy calling, I want you to think righteousness. If we walk worthy of the calling with which we were called, we're living in the right way. Okay, so Paul, how do we do that? How do we live righteously in the culture? Well, it's got to have some other qualities that go along with it. And at the head of that list is humility. Emptying ourselves of ourselves so that Christ can fill us, but it doesn't happen by itself. I want you to notice that there are other qualities. 
The Apostle Paul says that alongside of your humility, there needs to be a gentleness. Gentleness means that we uh, are kind with the weaknesses of others. It means that we speak in a soft voice, that we don't raise the voice in harshness. The Apostle Paul says, along with my humility, there was this gentleness. There also needs to be patience. Patience means emotional calm in the face of provocation. Not easily pushed across the line. And then he talks about tolerance. Tolerance means enduring difficulties to put up with. And then he says there's diligence. Diligence means an eagerness to do what is right. And it means putting in the energy and the effort to do so. Now let's think about what Paul is saying in both of these contexts as he speaks to the church at Ephesus and as he speaks to us today. He is saying that your righteous living needs to be accompanied by humility. But if there is humility in your life, there are going to be other things that will be obvious to others. You're going to have an emotion that is driven by your devotion to the Lord. You're also going to be willing to sacrifice for the cause of Christ so that you don't, your head doesn't swell too large in your righteousness. But you're also going to be gentle with other people. You're not going to be provoked easily. You're going to be patient with others. Realize that they may not do things to you in the way that you would want it to be done. They might even hurt or mistreat you. And you need to be tolerant with others. Realize that not everybody's at the same place. Not everybody has everything conquered to the same degree. And you need to be diligent, ready to put forth the effort. You know, when people see that not only do we have a heart, but that we have a heart for them, we will impact this world with a humble righteousness. And when people see that not only does our faith cost us something, but that we don't make them pay too great a price for when they stumble and fall with regard to the standard of God, we'll make an impact on this world. Now, having seen that, I want you to see the contrast. Jesus is going to talk about those who were righteous of a sort, but they were not humbly righteous. And really, the poster child for this are the scribes and the Pharisees. You remember in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus says, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, whatsoever they tell you, that observe and do. But do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. They bind up heavy burdens and they lay them on men's shoulders, but they will not lift them with so much as a finger. And they do their righteous deeds to be seen of men. They broaden their phylactery. They lengthen the tassel of their garment. They love the places of honor at the banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplace and to be called rabbi by men. And you know what's interesting to me is as you follow Jesus as he speaks of this in Matthew 23, you get down to the bottom line, his conclusion of that argument in that paragraph. You notice what he says in Matthew 23 and verse 12. Whoever humbles himself shall be exalted, but whoever exalts himself shall be abased. No wonder that these folks who claim to have righteousness but who did not bear these other qualities, no wonder Jesus holds them up as how not to practice righteousness. I believe the heart of the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20. Jesus says, except your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. No tears, no trials, No gentleness, no patience, no tolerance, no diligence accompanied their righteousness. 
If you and I are going to pull off living in a way that's right, in a way that's humble, we need to realize that there are other qualities that go right alongside of it that we've got to incorporate into our lives. But number two, if we're going to live righteous in a humble way, we need to realize that righteousness is something that, can be, that can't be faked, but it must be put on. It cannot be faked. That's not going to be pleasing to God, but it must be put on. And I want you to see the distinction. You know, in 2002, Hollywood and Leonardo DiCaprio made Frank Abagnale Jr.'s incredible story famous. Abagnale left home because of a chaotic home life at the age of 15. And by the age of 21, he had successfully impersonated an airline pilot, a doctor, a lawyer, and a college professor. It was incredible. Along the way, in order to support himself and to keep himself alive, uh, uh, he became, became a professional con man. He became an expert check fraud. And he did this for several years until finally he was caught. He was in prison a total of five years. And then the FBI made a deal with him. They said that if you will help us to identify and prosecute check fraud, then we'll give you your freedom. And he accepted that offer. Now, what was incredible about Abagnale is that he could impersonate, take on the persona of whoever it was that he was trying to imitate. Now, I know we don't usually use this kind of an illustration in this way, and I know that the Bible spiritually speaks of that, putting on another face as hypocrisy, but I want to focus on the intensity with which Abagnale became what he wanted to be. What God tells you and me is that we need to want to become righteous people who do so humbly. That means that we have got to dress ourselves. We have got to clothe ourselves. We have got to put on the quality of humility. In fact, this is a principle that's given to us in at least two different passages. The Apostle Paul, for example, in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 9 says that you have put off the old man uh, with its evil practices and you have put on the new man uh, with true knowledge according to the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free man, but Christ is all and is in all. And so dearly beloved... As those chosen of God and precious put on a heart of kindness and meekness and humility and gentleness and patience. I want you to notice that the Apostle Paul says that if you are a child of God, you have put on the new man, you've been made right by God, you're going to live righteously. But it's going to be a quality that you have got to put on, humility, along with these other qualities. And then a different word is used in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5, a word that's only found in this particular passage. Peter says, you younger, be uh, subject to your elders. All of you be clothed with humility, seeing that God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace unto the humble. Now while this is a different word, it carries with it a strikingly similar idea. That word that you're to clothe yourselves in 1 Peter 5, 5 is used of taking a garment and tying it around you with a string or a band. So the idea is cinching a quality until it is firmly in place. So the Apostle Paul is speaking to us and he says that humility is something that you must put on and keep it on permanently. Day and night, publicly and privately, wherever you are, whoever you're with, Put on humility. 
And that's what's going to make your righteousness not only pleasing to God, but effective with humanity. He reminds us that we are going to be humble because of what we've escaped, the old man with his evil practices. We're going to be humble because we realize what we are now. We are renewed with Jesus Christ and our knowledge of Him. We're going to be humble because of who we are now. We're not measured, we're not evaluated by our race or our earthly status, but by the fact that Christ lives in us. We are going to be humble because of what we see that God sees of us, that we're holy and beloved and we're precious to Him, and because of how we want God to see us. Peter says, opposed to the proud, no, I want to have that humility that causes God to approve of me. Humility is something that we must put on, but not something that is to be a put on, to be a fraud or a show. That's the difference between true humility and false humility. Augustus Gordon, uh, a doctor of psychology at the University of Central Missouri, talks about uh, the difference between that true humility and false humility. He says false humility seeks happiness from the attention of others wants others to recognize them and elevate them to the status that they feel that they deserve is self-gratifying or self-serving. You see, we're not called to put on a false humility. We need to be more concerned with embodying humility than enacting humility. And here's the thing. People can spot the real article from the fake every time. People can see whether or not our humility is something that is put on or something that is a part of us. John Flavel says the one that knows God cannot be, uh, will be humble and the one who knows himself cannot be proud. If we're going to be righteously humble, then it is a quality that we must put on but cannot be faked. But then third, I suggest to you that if we're going to be righteous humbly, then we need to realize that humility is a quality that's impact is seen among others. Humility is a virtue that is useless in isolation. And so the New Testament shows us how this righteousness lived out humbly is going to impact others. It's going to be effective when we find ourselves in group dynamics. For example, humility is that which causes us to put others above ourselves. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3, the Apostle Paul says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility of mind let each esteem others as better than self. When you think about the Apostle Paul and what he's saying here, just look at how this thread goes throughout the letter and how Paul gives us examples of those who put others above themselves. There's Paul himself, there's Christ, there's Timothy, there's Epaphroditus, there's Paul again, and all of them did the same thing. They put others above themselves. And it caused their righteousness to be impactful. When I'm more concerned about others getting the attention... Others receiving the praise and others seeing, uh, receiving the compliments, then I'm going to understand this principle. Humility is seen when we want others above ourselves. But humility is also seen in the group when we think uh, more highly of our elders and our elderly than we do ourselves. Go back to Peter's words in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5, and he says that we are to clothe ourselves with humility. For God is opposed to the proud but gives grace unto the humble. He says, you younger, be in subjection to your elders. 
I think one of the marks of a worldly society is is that we don't respect the elderly. That so often we see them as a burden to bear or that their pace and their limitations is something that tries our patience. But the child of God living righteously is going to demonstrate that humility by honoring those in our society that are elderly. Humility is also seen in the way that we treat the lowly. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 16, the Apostle Paul is talking about how we live among one another. That we're not to be conceited, that we are to uh, be humble with regard to the lowly. And we're never to be wise in our own sight. If you want to see righteousness in motion, then what you see is the righteous who treat those who cannot do anything in return for them without any kind of selfish expectation. This is exactly what Jesus teaches in his ministry in Matthew chapter 14 and verse 12 when he says, when you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends and your brothers and your relatives and your rich neighbors for they may be able to repay you and if so, you've received your repayment in full. But you, when you give a dinner, invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind for they have no means to repay you. You'll be repaid in the resurrection of the righteous. How powerful is a righteous life where humility is shown in the way that we treat those who are lowly? Then there's a fourth category that we see in the passage that we've already uh, seen, and this may be the hardest one. And that is humility is demonstrated in how we act when even are mistreated by our brethren. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 and verse 9, Peter says, finally, brethren, be all of you sympathetic and brotherly and kind-hearted and humble, not uh, returning railing for railing or curse for curse, but instead a blessing, knowing that hereunto you were called that you should inherit a blessing. Peter is saying to us, how is it you're going to behave when you're mistreated by your brothers and sisters in Christ? You're going to defer to them. You're not going to have to have your way all the time. When there's a difficulty, sometimes you'll give way to your preferences and your opinions for the good of your brother. I think it was George Bailey that talked about two mountain goats on a pass. One's going up and one's going down. It's too narrow. They can't go around. There's only one way for this to be a success. One of them's got to lay down and let the other one go over them. Are you willing to be the goat that lays down and lets your brother or sister walk over you, have their way? That's the Apostle Paul. In 1 Corinthians 9, 19-22, he talks about all the ways he accommodated himself to his brethren, and in that he indicates... In 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 22, I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Now, I've not been exhaustive here, but here are four categories where our righteousness through humility proves so powerful. How is it that I'm going to treat other people? How am I going to treat the elderly specifically? How am I going to treat those that are the humble of society, the lowly, those without anything? And how am I going to treat my brethren proactively? Not just the ones that treat me kindly, but the ones that may mistreat me. And when I do, what kind of an impact will it have on my community and on the church? Think about if we take that ethic of putting others above ourselves. Now I want you to imagine yourself maybe 30 minutes from now and you're on Scottsville Highway. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, doesn't matter. And the worst part of the day. And you're in a position to where you're stuck. You ever been there? And somebody, out of the kindness of their heart, 
allows you to come. You know, the piece de resistance is if you have to make a left-hand turn. And they let you in there, and you're able to get out. How does that change your day? Or if you're in the grocery store, and the person in front of you has a cart full of groceries, and you're behind them, and they turn around, they see that you only have two or three items in your hand, and they say, hey, you only have a few items, why don't you go ahead of me? Does that change the course of your day? What if we found ourselves as Christians who were bent on trying to be that kind of person all the time? That we were looking for ways to put others above ourselves. Would it make an impact for the Lord's church in this community if we were known as a people like that? And what about if it was apparent in the way that we treated our elderly and we start at home? Now, I don't want to insult them. Two of them are younger than me, but that might be our elders. Do you treat them with respect? But maybe it's the elderly of our congregation, those who are, who are older. It will certainly be seen in the way that we treat the elderly of our community. What kind of power, what kind of impact will it have when we practice 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5? Maybe those of us who uh, are looking at where we, were, where we are now, maybe we think that we know more or better than those who are older, more than they knew when they were our age, or maybe more than they know now. Peter says that you're going to give deference to those. You're going to respect them. And to those of us who are older, let me say that's a two-way street. Paul says, all of you be clothed in humility toward one another. Maybe those of us who have a little bit more experience in life, maybe we need to be deferential to the ideas and feelings of those who are younger than us. But this is righteousness lived out humbly. And what about if we were known in the community and the church as those who had compassion toward the lowly? We're to be humble toward those that are lowly. That word lowly in Romans 12 and verse 16 is our word humble. And the power and the impact that is seen when we have conquered this quality within and we demonstrate it toward others, what of an impact it will make on our world when they see us in our righteousness humble enough to help those in need. Jesus teaches this as the right kind of righteousness. In Matthew chapter 6 he says, And you when you give... Don't blow a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. For they do their deeds to be seen of men. But you, when you give, do it in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Now, here's the case about that. We don't want to blow a trumpet out before us. It is often the case that if we are generous and we give to those who are in need, things have a way of being found out. You think about Jesus. Jesus would heal somebody and he'd say, go and tell nobody. And the fame of Jesus grew all the more. The point is, Jesus is saying, don't help God with that. Don't find some way to let your, in your, some kind of humble brag, your good deed for somebody in need to be known. Let him be the one who rewards you in his way, in his time. And what about when it comes to our humility and our righteous behavior when we're being mistreated by our brethren? No mandate in Scripture tells us to go off on social media and find some direct or indirect way to be at war with a brother or sister in Christ with regard to some disagreement that we're having or to to muster our allies, our enemies in our fight. But instead, we're going to be deferential. We're going to let others be before ourselves. To be righteous humbly means that we're going to be impactful in our dealings with others. But to be righteous humbly, one other thing I would suggest to you is 
In doing so, we are a reflection of Jesus Christ. Do you want to be identified with Jesus? Then be righteous, but do so humbly. Look, here's the thing. It is hard to be righteous humbly. But then I look at Jesus. Jesus is the only individual who lived in absolute righteousness, who never sinned in any way. We can think of the passages, can't we, where Jesus is said to be one who was tempted to sin, but he never sinned. And in all those passages, we appreciate that he was absolutely righteous. But meanwhile, his righteousness was being attacked and assaulted nonstop. Luke 11 and verse 54, they sat and watched him to see if they might find some way in which they could catch him in something that he said. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is accused of the spirit of the demons, or the, 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 the head of the demons casting out demons. And yet Jesus never gave in to sin, and he never taunted or was arrogant in his sin-free righteousness. And he tells us, and New Testament writers tell us, imitate my example. Remember Jesus has washed the disciples' feet. What absolute humility that the master, the creator, would be the one who was at the dirty disciples' feet and washed their feet. And what he says is, here's the principle. I have given you an example of humility that you should do as I have done to you. And how about Paul in Philippians 2 and verse 5? Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus who demonstrated that humility in his righteousness. 1 Peter 2 and verse 21. Even hereunto were you called that like as Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example. Read verse 22 through 24 and see how his humility was in motion. His righteousness was made powerful through his humility. read a newspaper story some years ago about an incident that happened on a side street in a southern city. There was a tractor trailer who was driving down a side street and he misjudged the height of the bridge. And when his truck came to a stop under that bridge, he was wedged. He couldn't get out, couldn't go forward, couldn't go backward. They called in wreckers and the, the record company came in with all their equipment and with all their expertise. They couldn't figure out how to get that trucker free. There was a young engineering student at the scene and he walked up to the men there in the record companies and he said, if you deflated the tires. And so they did. They started to do that and the, as the tires screamed, the, the, the rig slowly pulled away from the bridge. And the wreckers came in with their chains and they gently pulled them backward and then they reinflated the tires and the trucker was on his way. You and I were everybody else in that story. And along comes Jesus. And Jesus tells us the way, and he shows us the way. He says, look, you're traveling up a narrow and difficult road, and the only way you're going to successfully make it is that there are going to be a lot of times when you've got to deflate yourself of yourself. And when you do that, then you're going to make it. There are going to be a lot of times where our progress is going to happen when we deflate ourselves of self. And when we do, we show people a living, breathing example of Jesus even if they have no idea that's what they're looking at. There is a huge difference between true righteousness and self-righteousness. When you begin to examine that in the New Testament, the Apostle uh, Paul and, and Jesus and others are going to tell us that. For example, Jesus in Luke chapter 18 and verse 9 tells a parable of those who trusted in their own righteousness and they looked down on others. In Luke 16 and verse 15, Jesus says that you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of all men. And in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus so often is reprimanding the uh, Pharisees and the scribes because they're so full of themselves. 
They are hard to be around in their righteousness. Jesus is telling us that that the guardrails of righteousness are made of ingredients, and one of the ingredients is humility. It's an indispensable ingredient. And humility is never going to exist in a vacuum. It's going to be there with other qualities. It is also going to be something, this humility, it's going to be something that is apparent in that we don't fake it, but we do put it on permanently. That this humility that the Bible calls for is only impactful in group dynamics. It's easy to be humble alone. It's when other people are introduced that it gets harder. And it is a way for us to reflect Jesus Christ. Pepe Mujica was the 40th president of Uruguay. He was uh, appointed in 2001, served 14 years. And he was an incredible guy. He gave up 90% of his presidential salary. He ditched the presidential palace. And for a long time, the only personal asset that he had was a 1987 Volkswagen Beetle. That's impressive. But Jesus gave up heaven and equality with God for the whole world. And Jesus says, I've given you an example that you should do as I've ever done unto you. Two applications as we close. Number one, if we're going to be made righteous by God, we're going to have to humble ourselves. It may be pride that's keeping us from being obedient to the gospel. We'll never have the righteousness that God wants to give to us if we try to do it based on our own righteousness. Our righteousness, our being made righteous, only comes through what His Word says. By believing that Jesus is God's Son, knowing that He had to die in our place, repenting of sins, and being baptized to have those sins washed away. Application number two is that if we're going to be the righteous people that are going to be salt and light, that are going to cause folks to glorify God as they see our good works, then our righteousness is going to have to be encapsulated in true humility. We need to humble ourselves. You know what that may mean? That may mean that we have caused someone else to stumble. We may have sinned against a brother or sister in Christ. And maybe we feel like we're justified in some way. Maybe we're causing trouble even beyond that private dispute. And maybe it's gotten public. It'll take humility for us. Maybe we need to be the one who bends down and lets the other one step over us. It's what Christ would do. Maybe you need to respond to heaven's invitation. David's going to sing a song to encourage us. If it's your song, it's your invitation rather, we would urge you to come right now as we stand and sing.